first Sunday of this new year to worship God with you in spirit and in truth. We will continue our study through the book of Romans. Um, I want to introduce the lesson somewhat differently than what I normally do with these studies. We will open our Old Testaments to Psalms. Psalms chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll skip over to Psalm 53, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll turn over to Isaiah chapter 59. I'll give us time to uh, turn each time as we change places. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 through 7. David is writing to the chief musician, a psalm of David. He says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now we'll turn to Psalm 53. Psalm 53, verse 1 through 6. Psalm 53, verse 1 through 6 says, For the chief musician set to Mahalish, Master of David, the fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looking down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand that did seek after God. Every one of them is gone back. They are together becoming filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon God. There were they in great fear where no fear was, for God hath scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame because God hath rejected them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When God bringeth back to the captivity of his people, then shall Jacob rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Thank you. Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. You'll see as we begin to study our verses in Romans, why we're introducing this text with these, uh, this study with these texts, with these scriptures. Isaiah 59, verse 7 through 8 and 8. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They've made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. These passages form a background. Uh, to the text in Paul's letter to Romans that we're going to study in the next paragraph in our, in our attention today. It's our intention to take the study as we've been attempted to do verse by verse and add application as we follow Paul's pattern. The last verse of our text today, Romans chapter 3 verse 20, concludes the first point of, the introduction, of Paul's introduction to his letter to Romans, to the church at Rome. It's been a struggle for me as we've gone through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and thus far in chapter 3 to remember that Paul is speaking not to the world, but he's speaking to Christians. At no point in these three chapters thus far has he addressed society outside of the church. If you recall in Romans chapter 1, I think it's verse 8, he says, to the saints called of God at the church in Rome. 
Paul is addressing, uh, this is a key concept in, our, in understanding our lesson today, that Paul is addressing fellow Christians, his brothers and sisters in Christ, some of the problems and difficulties that they faced, that they dealt with on a regular basis. Before we get into the lesson, appreciate the songs that have been led today, how they stir our heart and cause us to remember the blessings that God has graciously bestowed upon us. Our study today comes from Romans chapter 3, the center of the, of the chapter, and the end of the, of the Apostle Paul's introduction to his letter to Rome. Paul had lots of things to talk about to the church at Rome, and he started with clearly uh, illuminating the difference between Jew and Gentile and the special privilege that the Jews had, but that they had turned their back on and have rejected, rejected God. And Paul really drives home and makes a special emphasis the concept or the idea that all men are equal before God when it comes to the requirements of salvation and when it comes to the grace that has been bestowed upon them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us open our scriptures to Romans chapter 3. We'll read verse 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. The Apostle Paul is using his logic, his reason, and he says, What then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they were all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands, none who seeks after God. They all have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Apostle Paul concludes his introduction to the church at Rome with that great statement that by the law is the knowledge of sin. This is one of the great purposes of the law of the Old Testament. It showed people their sin, their great distance from God. Let's start at the beginning and break this down word by, uh, phrase by phrase, each verse as we work through to verse 20. The Apostle Paul starts with a question. As he had the previous few paragraphs in this chapter, he says, What then? Are we better than they? What then appears to be a continuation from verse 3, all the way back at the very beginning. This is Paul's method of causing the reader, causing the listener today, to consider what has occurred in his uh, language, in his monologue, since chapter 1, verse 18. So Paul is reaching all the way back to the beginning of his address to the church at Rome. If the advantage of Jewishness is in their possession of the oracles of God, as Paul has just established, Paul's asking, does this make us better? Who is the us? Paul's referring to himself as a Christian, not as a Jew. He's talking to Christians. Does this make us Jewish or Gentile background? Does this make us better? Do we have a, this, a, a, an advantage com comparable to the advantage that the Jew had under the law of Moses? Are we better than they? The next very, very next phrase. Mm -hmm. Not at all, the Apostle Paul says. Not at all. He includes himself in that question. He does so not as a Jew, for he was not a Jew any longer. We need to keep that in mind. He had forsaken, turned his back on his Judaism on his Jewishness, now this is the Christian Paul 
who is talking, who is preaching to his fellow Christians. Paul makes an emphatic negative statement. No, the advantages of the Jew did not make him superior, nor does the advantages of the Christian make us superior. To be under sin literally means to be under the dominion of sin, and the complete perversity of sin is seen in the many manifold ways it's manifested in the following verses. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, we won't turn back and read that, uh, Paul proves conclusively that the Gentiles are guilty of sin and that they have violated the moral code that is written in their hearts. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 38, the apostle Paul shows that the Jew is under sin. He reveals the sinfulness of the Jews. Now Paul blasts all people, Jew and Gentile, with quotes from Old Testament scriptures. Paul shows how sin manifests itself in mankind. He details the deeds of sin, and we're going to go through that in just a moment. Having shown at some length the obvious differences between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile, and having compared their relative advantages or disadvantages, Paul asks us if there's really any material difference. And he answers his own question with a resounding no. Override in all classes, all differences of class, creed, culture, race, as we might call it today, the somber fact that all are under sin. It's a devastating concept for us to grasp this morning. All are under sin. This statement is presented as a charge, a legal accusation that's presumably made in the name of God against his own created beings. That awful togetherness of mankind, of human, humanity, under sin, takes precedence over any and every other similarity or dissimilarity that may be found in creed or in culture or in whatever else we may consider. It's that before God we are all exposed to our sinfulness because of his righteousness. Now, the force of the expression that's used here, under sin, needs to be carefully noted. Paul describes the relationship between a schoolboy and his teacher, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 25, as being under a schoolmaster. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 1, he says, Slaves were under the yoke. All of these concepts, including this one, under sin, means that people are under the control of the yoke or the schoolmaster, or in this case, under the control of sin. In all these instances, to be under means to be dominated by the authority of something else. It's important that we understand this very base concept. This concept that all are under sin is a scriptural precept. But scripture... does not teach us that people are naturally or totally depraved from birth. We're going to dig into this just a little bit in a few minutes. It does not teach us that men inherit their total depravity. Mankind is sold under sin. That's a scriptural concept. This renders them totally depraved. Another scriptural concept, if we take it right. Even their righteousness outside of Christ is false and insecure until it's based on the righteousness of God. As I said, we'll talk about this more in just a moment. As it is written, this is a phrase that's used over 90 times in Paul's letters, and every time it's used to introduce an Old Testament quote, or a series, as he does here, of Old Testament quotes. The following lines come from, Isaiah, from Psalm 14 and 53 and Isaiah 59, Primarily, there's a few other references that it could, could be drawn from, but these are the primary texts. That's why we've read them in the introduction. I'll give the original reference as best as I can for each line. Paul quotes primarily from the Hebrew scriptures, the original text, Jewish text, as well as a translation of the original Jewish text from Hebrew into Greek known as the Septuagint. If you're reading a commentary or some scholar uh, and you see the letters capital L, capital X, capital X as though it's one word, 
that's an abbreviated form of the Septuagint. Um, it's, it's a reference to this, this Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's, that's the way it's commonly written. The Septuagint was written, just give a little bit of history and background, by 72 scribes in the libraries of Alexandria, Egypt, during the reign and at the request of Ptolemy II at 285 to 247 BC. These 72 Jewish scholars, six from each tribe, independently produced identical translations of the Jewish scriptures. Now, scholars can differentiate between the quotations in Paul's writings and in other places in the New Testament as to which quotation is from the original Hebrew and which quotation is from the Septuagint. We're concerned about this, and this is important for us to understand, because it shows that Paul, who was writing by inspiration, used translations and used versions other than the original language. That gives us authority to do the same thing in our day and in our time. We don't have to go back and study New Testament Koine Greek, in other words, to understand what the scriptures say. God has faithfully translated, transmuted it to us in the translations that we have today. And we need to be careful in choosing those translations. And that's a study for a whole, a whole different study for another time. Paul's first quote, there's none righteous, no, not one. And I've lost my picture. It's a quote from Psalm 14, uh, verse 3, and Psalm 53, verse 3. With Paul's quotes or references to the Old Testament, we have an Old Testament description of man's sinfulness. And it's no wonder, as Paul looked into the Scripture, the oracles of God for the defense of his legal charge that none are righteous, he has pointed out that the possession and custodianship of the oracles of God was the Jews' greatest advantage. We talked about that last week. Paul's all-embracing charge then requires substantiation. He wastes no time presenting his substance. Drawing freely from a variety of Old Testament sources, he writes a scathing denunciation in the verses that we're studying right now. As we saw in Romans 1 verse 17, the righteousness of God is the central theme of this epistle, of this letter to the church at Rome. He pointed out that God's righteousness has to do with his always being the right and therefore always doing that which is right because he himself is the only criteria of righteousness. He himself is the only criteria of rightness. In the same way that there is, that there's this, there can only be one magnetic north, and all other points of the compass find their identity and relationship to that one true north. So righteousness is solely found in the character of God, and all other standards of righteousness must be determined with reference to him. We don't get to come up with our own standard. That's will worship. That's false doctrine. This charge that none are righteous is not a figment of Paul's imagination, nor is it a product of his disenchantment with the human race or his disenchantment with his Jewish brothers. He clearly substantiates his positions with quotes from Psalms and from Isaiah. It's as old as God's dealings with mankind. And man's resentment and resistance to that charge are equally as ancient. These people who have no interest in God and those who blatantly live in opposition to God are, if we could press that analogy of the compass a little bit further, as far headed south, away from God, who would be true north, clearly at odds with him. Other people stray from the north just a little bit, maybe north-northeast or north-northwest. And it seems... It seems difficult to comprehend that those who have strayed just a little bit are the hardest ones to reach and convince of their, of their wickedness, of their sin. But those who have strayed completely away, 
are usually much easier to use logic and show the scriptures. Those who have strayed just a little bit are close. I think that's why. And they know that they're close and they therefore they think that they're okay. But to the world in general, Paul declares, there is none righteous, no, not one. A double emphasis. No, not one. Going back to those Psalms and the prophet, we see that God is pictured there in the Psalms and in Isaiah as looking down upon the human race and searching for one man who is perfectly righteous in his eyes. And he is unable to find it. That's why he says in Psalms and in Isaiah, no, not one. And this becomes difficult to reconcile with the language of the New Testament when we consider various Old Testament figures such as Lot, who is declared righteous in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Luke chapter 1 and verse 6, Joseph, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19, these people were declared righteous. How does that work with Paul's declaration that there is none righteous, no, not one? Pardon me, with God's declaration that there is none righteous, no, not one, but here these are righteous. Righteous in these men's lives means that they're totally free from sin? No. It means that they were called righteous by inspiration because the tenor, the overall aim of their life was righteous. Like David, who was the friend of God and sinned greatly. We don't read of these people's great sin. Well, maybe in the case of Lot we do. But the scripture calls them righteous because their great desire, their overall desire was to please God. There is none righteous. There's none who understands. This is drawn from Psalm chapter 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there's any who understand, who seek God. It's also drawn from Psalm 53, verse 2. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. He's still drawn from Psalm 14 and 53. Where the Lord's search for spiritually understanding among men was fruitless. Failure to understand our spiritual condition is a sin. We need to be very careful. The Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians, when he's correcting them because of their abuses of the Lord's Supper, tells us that this is a time of self-introspection. It's willful ignorance. Men are in the dark, and generally men prefer to remain there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes, saying, And you who once were alienated and enemies by your wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Too often we want to have our way when it comes to salvation, don't we? We want to have our way when it comes to living our lives. The notion that it doesn't matter what a person believes just as long as he or she is sincere is an example of fuzzy, clouded thinking regarding spiritual things. And the Apostle Paul was opposed to such. There is none who seeks after God. No one, in other words, endeavors to know and to do his will or to be acquainted with his character. For the psalmist, spiritual understanding translated to seeking God. Look again at Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. There the Apostle Paul says, "Because Who, because they knew God, did not glorify Him as God, nor were they, were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. How did men become fools? Because they did not seek after God. We seek after everything else though, don't we? But the language here does not indicate that God is concealed as popular doctrine and popular teaching would have us believe today. Or that he plays games like hide and seek with us. Rather, it teaches that men are lost. And because of their lostness, men often make no effort to follow the light that they do have. This was the beginning of Paul's charge against the Gentiles. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 12 and 14, Jeremiah says, Then you will call upon me and pray to me, 
And I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. And I will be found by you. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Here we see the availability and the reality that God can be found. We must put forth effort. I remember telling somebody not long ago, it takes work. It should be noted that the Calvinistic doctrine that we referenced a few minutes ago has infiltrated so many so-called church doctrines or articles of faith or um, whatever term they may be. However, those who have honestly searched the scriptures and diligently searched the scriptures reject this Calvinistic approach that interpreters generally call total depravity. Now, I hinted that there was a sense in that word, in sense that there was a sense in which that phrase could be used properly. Total depravity, if it were meant no more than the truth that every man has sinned, is an acceptable scriptural term. There's no objection to that. In fact, the scripture says, all are under sin. All have sinned. All have strayed. Common popular teaching today says all have sinned and thus this total depravity is a term for man's condition following Adam's sin which they have inherited from him. They've inherited a bent toward evil, a complete, listen to this, a complete inability to do good apart from divine grace. This notion, this idea makes election and predestination necessary. We cannot be saved until the Holy Spirit act upon us and give us this grace to be saved. That's nothing more than eisegesis. For those of you who are learning or wanting to study a little bit of Greek or Latin, eisegesis means self-interpretation. In other words, inserting personal notions into the scripture. Rather than exegesis, allowing our thoughts, allowing our doctrine to be governed by what the scripture says. Verse 12, they've all turned aside. And our contemplation of these verses, of this verse full of Old Testament quotes and references, it would do us well to remember that David penned these words before Christ. Man's acceptance or rejection of the Messiah is not necessarily in David's idea here. They have all turned aside. People have deliberately forsaken the path where God's light shines. Isaiah 53, verse 6, one of my most favorite chapters. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Psalm 14, verse 3. They've all turned aside. They've together become corrupt. There's none who does good. No, not one. An almost exact quote in 53 verse 3. The apostles' generous use of the Old Testament to demonstrate the exceeding sinfulness of sin is really quite profound here. Then he says, or quotes, they have become unprofitable. This word indicates something that once was good and useful, like meat that's now spoiled or milk that's out of date. Man's good deeds never outweigh the bad in his life. Man's good deeds never outweigh the bad in his life. None of us ever do our best. We try to do our best. Recall Paul's attitude toward the things that he once considered important and precious. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 11, he says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I the more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may win Christ and that I may be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law 
But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's only desire was to know Christ. Nothing else matters. His chief desire in knowing Christ was to attain the resurrection of the dead, to rise victorious with him at that final day. They have all become unprofitable. Those who don't have similar desires and designs in their life are unprofitable. There's none good who does good, no, not one. Same phrase as what was used in verse 11. Verse 10, brother. When it comes to doing goodness, there's not as much as one person. Like if we were counting, we couldn't even get to one. All of man's religious works were conceived in sin, and therefore they're unrighteous. The only way for the Jew to be better than the Gentile is for him to be religiously perfect and morally perfect. And that was impossible for him. It's impossible for us too. Absolutely without sin. This is contrary to the Jewish scriptures as we're seeing here from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and Isaiah 59. It's contrary to the Christian scriptures too. This is a very precise quote. Paul is showing that all have sinned. There's no exception. Therefore, there's no favoritism. All are equally guilty. All equally in need of redemption. All must obey the gospel. And now the apostle turns his phrase in just a little bit and begins to address them more directly. He digs in a little bit deeper, if you will. Their throat is an open tomb, Psalm 5, verse 9. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. In other words, that which is in a man is revealed by his speech. That which is in a man is revealed by his speech. Surely this is why Paul chose the organ and the tongue to display the awfulness of man's sin. It's been noted that a grave contains one man, and a tomb contain, or a sepulcher contains several bodies. Their throat is an open tomb. The stench that comes from them, from their heart, is equal to the stench of a tomb that has been left open in the warm midday sun. This is why, as Christians, we should have a problem with some of the music that sometimes we listen to, some of the shows that sometimes we watch, some of the things that sometimes we might say or pick up from people at work, from our co-workers, from our friends, maybe even from our loved ones. A little bit about Paul's method of teaching here. He was in his past a Jewish rabbi. Many think that he was in line to take the place of Gamaliel. Gamaliel is still recognized as one of the greatest rabbis of all of Jewish history. They used a method called Chiraz, or which means stringing pearls together. They would take verses from a variety of sources and develop an argument from that the stringing together of those verses. And that's what Paul is doing here. He proceeds to do this and, and build on this as he turns from broad generalities in the previous two verses about the human condition and begins to address specific human activities. The same way that James in his epistle stressed the immense power of the tongue to express all manner of evil and produce all types of chaos. Paul chooses to concentrate on the activities of the human voice to illustrate man's sinfulness. And if you look at this carefully, he goes from inside out as we go through this verse. Their throat is an open tomb. Nothing but foulness pours forth. This is a striking or disgusting metaphor, yet rather important as we consider it, especially as we consider man's depraved vocabulary. Let's us see the deadness in men's hearts. An open tomb is an apt description of the inner realities of the human condition without salvation, 
without God. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. In other words, in their conversations, they have been false, treacherous, untruthful. We say we long and yearn for the time when a man's word was his bond. From what I gather from Paul, that might be a figment of our imagination. Mankind without God have always been false, treacherous, and untruthful. In total contrast, Paul's second pearl on the string, keeping that, that idea of his method of teaching in, in line here. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. Far from being disgusted and obscene, the speech of some is sweet and smooth, sugar-coated statements and well-buttered platitudes designed to tickle the ear, designed not to wound, designed for deception. David, whom Paul is quoting at this point, knew from bitter experience with King Saul how devastating hostility can be cloaked with the mouth of civility. You remember, the time came in Saul's life as he practiced a life of jealousy and hatred toward David. He says to the young man, here is my older daughter Mirab. I will give her to you in marriage, only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. His purpose was to get David on the front, front line so David, his enemy, could be killed, his supposed enemy. Paul was talking, or Saul rather was, King Saul was talking piously about the Lord's battles and touching the young man's heart with, with a offer of his oldest daughter for a bride. At the same time, he was plotting David's death. Saul, Saul's tongue, had long practiced deceit. And then this interesting metaphor, the poison of asps is under their lips. It comes from Psalm 140, verse 3. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Uh, this is probably a reference to the Egyptian cobra. Culturally, that serpent or, or snake is seen as wise and crafty and is referenced in a lot of ancient poetry. What's interesting about him, if you see him, the shape of his face is not canonical as most snakes are. It doesn't look as deadly as most snakes do. If you look at him and he opens his mouth, you don't see his teeth. His teeth are hidden behind his lips. But he is one of the most poisonous snakes in all of the world. Uh, usually, if a person is struck or bitten by this asp, he is dead in just a very few minutes. The Apostle Paul is using this in chilling and graphic to describe the danger of our words. Remember, Paul's talking to Christians here. He's talking to Christians here. James says in James chapter 3, verse 8, No man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, comes from Psalm 10, verse 7, and Psalms 5, verses 9 and 10. It's a, it's a lateral line. He's extending the metaphor, if you will. The mouth is to be made full with innocent laughter and joyous praise, while at the same time carrying poison. It became, the tongue became befouled with cursing and bitterness. Jesus says, Matthew 15, verse 18 and 19, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. These are they which defile a man. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood, verse 15. This person's action is no better than his speech comes from Isaiah 59, verse 7 and 8, which we read in the introduction. Whoever takes that way, Isaiah concludes in verse 8, shall not know peace. We'll see another direct correlation here in just a moment. Do you see the enthusiasm with which some people run to violence, run to division, run to 
spread evil, oppression and misery, division and discontent or mild content is the end game of their works. They shed blood. This is a link between their behavior and the spiritual vacuum that it springs from. Ignorance of the way of peace and absence of the fear of God is what we're going to see in just a second. They carried the entire body, their entire being, into doing awful things. We see this early in the story of mankind's history. Right after creation, a disagreement between Cain and Abel resulted in Cain's murder of his brother. Cain's religion was too refined to slay a lamb, but not too refined to slay a man. And that came from his heart. Paul condenses his thoughts from Isaiah 59, which described things in Isaiah's day, in Paul's day, and in our day. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Destruction points to things that are crushed, shattered, and broken. Misery is the wretchedness that results from destruction. Every place the bloody feet of the previous verse have trodden, that's what they leave behind, destruction and misery. Just a brief scan of human history demonstrates these things for us. The way of peace they have not known. There's no justice in their ways from Isaiah 59 verse 8. They've made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Wicked man's actions are not productive of happiness. But quarrels and disquiet. Peace is the way the righteous men walk. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Sinful men walk many ways. Never the way of peace. This is not the way that leads to peace. Not peace in the heart. Not peace in their life. Christians, conversely, are those who seek peace. Who live for peace. Hebrews 12 verse 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 2 Timothy 2 verse 22, Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who called on the Lord out of a pure heart. Jesus we see as the Prince of Peace. But peace is a stranger in the world. Peace is a stranger in sinful men's hearts and in sinful men's lives. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All of these descriptors that Paul has gone through as he strung them together from various places in the Old Testament, the root cause, the beginning of all of those miseries, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Do you see how now at the end of the introduction to the letter, Paul is tying this end of the, uh, of the introduction in with the beginning of the introduction, where he says that man has rejected God and therefore God has rejected man. Now he says destruction and misery are the way that they live. They don't know peace because they have no fear of God. He closes his scriptural depiction of the sinfulness of mankind with this line from Psalms 36, verse 1. Sinful men turn their backs on God because he's no longer in, their front of them, in front of their eyes. And Paul declares that this is the root cause of evil in the world. No reverence, no fear of God, no respect for his revelation. The eyes of faith do not see God. So the tongues of uh, tongue, feet, and so forth cannot be present in God's ways, which are ways of peace. What we've seen in these verses, as Paul has strung these quotations from the Old Testament together, is the sinful condition, verse 10 through 12, the sinful life, verse 13 through 16, and the sinful source, verse 17 and 18. Fear of God or our reverence directed toward Him, the results in a love of God, which makes us desirous to please Him at all times. The fear of God results refers to that overpowering inner concern 
that Paul expressed in Philippians, that I may win Christ, that we see expressed in the desire of Lot and in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph. Their actions do not hurt or offend or provoke God. Love is the incentive to do good works in these people's lives. Fear, on the other hand, is the deterrent to avoid evil works. So when love fails, sometimes it does. Fear keeps the believer faithful. The fear of God, you might say, is the moral breaks. Fear of God means that God is constantly in the center of our thoughts. Our life is constantly characterized by an all-pervasive uh, dependence and on Him and responsibility to Him. And the absence of that fear excludes Him from the center of our thoughts, from the horizon of our plans, and ends us up in unqualified and unquantified godlessness. Ultimately, where God is not feared, nothing else is. Where God is not feared, nothing else is. And all that remains is for sin and wickedness to come in like a flood. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. External testimony to Scripture is what the apostle is given here. We know that the law of Moses was something that God gave especially to the Jews. And Paul has in mind here particularly the Jews, especially those who would admit that the Gentile was under condemnation. But the Jew had to come to the realization that the law that condemned the Gentile also condemned him. While they used it to point and to and accuse the Gentile, that law was actually written to the Jews. It was Jewish law, written for Jewish society. Paul evidently has in mind the sentence of the whole Old Testament because he uses quotes and phrases from various places in the Old Testament. He's speaking to the saints at Rome, as I said earlier, Romans 1 verse 7. It says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Christians need to realize that we also have a connection to the Old Testament. The Old Testament serves as a schoolmaster that points us to Christ. It serves as a schoolmaster that points out sin and the awfulness of sin and the horribleness of sin. We have a connection to the Old Testament. It's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing, an advantage for us because it places us on equal footing with the Jew. It places us with, on equal footing with every other human being on the face of the planet today. The Old Testament reveals our sinfulness like nothing else except the New Testament does. It is a purpose of the Old Testament to bring the realization of sin. Law reveals sin. Both law and gospel deal with sin. Law in the Old Testament reveals it, reveals the penalty of sin. The gospel of the New Testament reveals the plan for the removal of sin. The New Testament plan is contrition and faith. Here the words law under law is antithesis to under grace. An antithesis to under grace. He says that every mouth may be stopped. Paul specifies the purpose of his detailed argument here. That every mouth may be stopped. He wants no more pleading by the Jew that he has special consideration or special favoritism. Preceding verse... the. Preceding 14 statements of Scripture from Old Testament Scripture are a mirror in which the wise man sees himself. Like the leper of old, he'll put his hand over his mouth and cry out, unclean, unclean. Or like Isaiah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, when he saw the righteousness of God as he was serving in the temple, he saw himself as a man of unclean lips. Or like the publican, who stood on the street corner, wouldn't even lift his head up, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God, the whole world. This is how the human race 
suffers under total, total depravity. Not because sin is inherited, but all the world has become guilty under sin. This is a legal phrase, like what you would use in a trial to accuse or to defend. This man has been found guilty of sin, and he is now speechless. This is the every man, or the all have sinned. Verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Paul's bringing it home. He's making his point with a grand exclamation point. The New Testament details a plan by which man can be justified. It is a declared righteousness that God, upon certain conditions being met, promises to declare man justified and therefore treat him as though he were completely righteous. Even though there's none righteous, no, not one. God's plan is to make us righteous by meeting his conditions. Paul is nearly ready to proclaim this concept in detail and he begins to do that in the next few chapters. Here he establishes this incontrovertible fact that no one is righteous, no one can be justified by perfect obedience to the law, the law of Moses or the moral law of, of the heart. You cannot earn justification like that. No system of statutes, no mosaic system, no moral system of flesh will ever succeed in gaining acceptance with God. Let mortal man be clothed with works of law and present himself before the Most High. His verdict, God's verdict, will always be unrighteous. We cannot live good enough to earn salvation. We cannot do enough good works to buy the favor of God. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. This refers not just to head knowledge, but full realization, personal inner conviction. A law system sets the mark to attain. Failure to live up to that law system misses the mark, sin. One function of the law of Moses was to make men aware of their sin, of sin in their lives, and of their need for a Savior. Paul's point is made, and made very well. 